Well, I think uh, what's interesting is most of you, how many of you guys have been impacted by Paul Young's work? Yeah. I know, pretty fantastic. And so, um, welcome. My name is Mike Popovich, and uh, I'm just honored to say I know this guy, to be honest with you. And um, I, I actually met him through Baxter Kruger and Brad Jerzak and, and the, the, the guys he runs around with, which are just awesome. And so, anyway, um, you know, what these guys have helped me so much with is, is uh, that God's not angry, and he's not this retributive God that's going to hurt you and burn you eternally and all these strange doctrines that we grew up learning, which really create fear. And here's what I've seen is just uh, if we can get that fear out of people's lives and they really can slowly believe God's good again and he's for you and he's not against you and he's always been for you and he's unconditional love and he's radical forgiveness. I've just seen some amazing things is when their heart starts to heal, I've seen the rest of their lives come with it, whether it's... Um, you know, physical healings, we have so, so many manifestations of physical healings when their heart heals and, and lives start to heal and the broken places in their lives start to heal and they get more creative and they get more compassionate and relationships start to heal and that's what Paul's all about, to be honest with you, is uh, uh, the, the revelation of, of unconditional love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is just awesome to me. And, uh, and I'll just share, when I was, um, this is how cool it is, in, in my opinion, is when I was sharing, some of you guys heard it on the radio spot we did on KVR and some of these things, and when I was, I was sharing with a lady, I said, hey, uh, here's who we are, we're Freedom Ministries, we're, we don't really want it to be churchy, we don't want it to be, uh, we want it to the people who have kind of given up on religion but still know God's good and God's love and he's still out there, and, and she just starts opening her heart to me, the KVR lady, which is really fascinating, so here's what she writes, she said, uh, um, this is church, by the way. This is how we do church, even with the, <laughs> even with the Sons of Anarchy signs. So uh, I just think that I was telling her about Paul. She's like, of course, I know the shack. And, and uh, it's so great. So she says, Mike, thank you for sharing. Truly, it's a day and time now where so much of the message of God used, is used to polarize, politicize, and based on the message of fear and exclusion, it's refreshing to hear of a place as open and welcoming as freedom built on a foundation of love, which is the only thing I can equate God to. Isn't that awesome? And that's what Paul Young exhibits. So anyway, I just, I love you. And most of these people know you because they've heard your messages, read your books, seen the movies. And all I can say is thank you for coming to this humble little place called Monument, Colorado. Please welcome Paul Young, guys. Ha! This is awesome. I was with Brad Jerzak yesterday, and he said to make sure you give him my love, which, yeah, he loved being here. So he couldn't say enough good things about y'all. But, uh... I hear that train a-coming. That's great. When I went to Bible school, there was a train track along uh, close to the property. And uh, I was at a, in a real turmoil at that time. And at night, I would walk up the train track and I'd just scream into the prairie winds. You know, this is up in Saskatchewan. That's my friend Sarah. She's just uh, giving me the anointment, as Baxter would say. So it's all good. It's all good. And... Um, uh, Kim sends her greeting, the woman to whom I'm married, and we have 12 grandbabies. 
Right, six kids, 12 grandbabies so far. They're all 11 years old and under. And uh, you know, I'm a way better grandfather than I was a dad. <laughs> Just saying, when I was a dad, it was still about me, right? But my kids beat the snot out of my self-centeredness and now with my grandbabies, it's not about me, it's about them. And it's just been a whole different world. I love that, yeah, yeah. So I thought I'd tell you a story, and then, because uh, I'm a storyteller, I grew up in the church, it used to be called Lying. And um, good liars make great storytellers. So uh, a lot of folks who were previously religious tend to be good storytellers. And um, so I am, a, I'm, I am a storyteller. I love story, I think every human being is a story. And I think that's why we have a, an affinity for story. Um, lyricists and musicians are able to put story in, in a few words, poets, right? But it's all about story. And uh, those, if you've been in a service where there was lofty theological things said and they told one story, when you hit the parking lot, you remember one thing, the story they told. And, um, and so there is this thing about story um, that, it, 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 it sneaks past our watchful dragons. Now, a couple things you need to know. I never intended to be a published author. It wasn't on my to-do list, my dream list, my bucket list. It wasn't on any of that. I wrote since I was little. And I wrote, in, initially I wrote to try to get some of the inside stuff out. You know, and, um, and then I burned most of it or destroyed it because I couldn't take the risk that my hellfire and brimstone preacher dad would find it. And, um, and so over a lot of my, in my 20s and into my uh, late 20s, a lot of the stuff that I wrote was still really dark because I had a lot of great sadness as a child. And, um, but over time, it changed. It I began to write poetry and songs and short stories as gifts for friends and family. And, and it was my way, one of my ways of saying, I love you, I care about you, I see you. And um, so Kim, she'd been saying for about four years, you know, someday, as a gift for our children, would you just write something that puts in one place how you think? Because you think outside the box. And part of that is because I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in Cannibal Valley in the highlands of New Guinea. And uh, part of it is because uh, when you grow up outside of a culture, you have to deal with trying to figure out how to belong. And missionary kids just have a real struggle belonging, third culture kids. Um, and uh, so, you know, people ask me, why did you write the shack? I tell them, I was just trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. And, uh, <laughs> right? People always laugh when I say that, like it's not in the Bible. Kim told me it's in the Bible. Actually, it's in the Bible. It says, submit one to another, and she's one of the others. Right? And um, so I write a story. Um, it's a year that we had, we had nothing. And I was working three jobs. Kim was working at the high school bakery. Four of our six kids were still at home. We're living in about... 900 square foot, little tiny rental house. And, um, and it was the year that I finally felt healthy. It was the year I turned 50. And, um, you know, 
My great sadnesses include a dad, and, and when you're a child, you don't know that your parents were once children. <laughs> you don't know that something happened to them. All you know is that they tell you what becomes the truth about who you are. And, and my dad was a very angry, young, religious man. And I didn't know that he had been orphaned at 12. I didn't know that he'd been in a highly abusive, dysfunctional upbringing. I didn't know that, that he was sent by Children's Services Division at the time into farm labor. And the kids would, uh, that were orphaned would live in the barns and work the fields and watch the families through the windows. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that he ran away from that and into the logging camps at 14 and was in the logging camps for four years, which you know is a highly supportive, nurturing <laughs> environment. And uh, two of his older sisters, two of, uh, the, he had uh, 10 in the family, and two of his older sisters uh, drug him to a Sawdust Trail Camp Revival meeting where he had an encounter with Jesus. And he walks out of the logging camp and into Bible school where he meets my mom. And they get married. He takes a little church up in northern Alberta, and I'm born. And when I'm 10 months old, the three of us pack up everything, and we move to the highlands of New Guinea where I grow up inside of a culture that I didn't know I was white till I went to boarding school at 6. It was a huge disappointment. Just telling you, I'm still a little bit pissed about it. So, the, uh, but I, it was not a conscious awareness because my whole world was brown. And, um, and so when, when, when I spoke of the missionaries, including my parents, they were under the label of Mungat. And when I was five and around the conversations that the tribal folk were having of whether to kill my parents or not, I didn't feel endangered because I wasn't, I wasn't a Mungat. Mungat just means a ghost person and um, a person without real substance, you know. And, uh, but I did not have that conscious awareness. Part of the problem was is that the tribal people were my family. They raised me. My parents were doing the missionary thing, so they were busy from morning till night. And uh, I'd get picked up in the morning and dropped off at night. And uh, um, so I was the first person from outside their world to ever learn their language. And we had a large tribe. New Guinea has over 850 unrelated language groups. And the Dani tribe were 40 to 60,000 members strong over 100 square miles. And when I was five, Wycliffe came in to translate the language, and I was the informant. Because it was my first language. It was my dreaming language. Right? And uh, at five also, or before five, the sexual abuse started in the tribal culture. And there was a lot of it. And at six, I'm sent away to boarding school, and the big boys at night would come and molest the little boys. So there's nothing that is like sexual abuse that rips the fabric of the human soul to shreds. And, uh, and then it just becomes about survival. But it destroys your ability to have boundaries. It destroys your, your, your sense of safety. You can't trust anymore. And trust became the journey of my life. So. Fast forward 50 years, right? I'm writing a story for my kids for Christmas. And I'm embedding in it my history. Uh, 
I had a writer from Nashville. She wrote me and she said, when she read The Shack, she said, I don't know who you are, because nobody did. And uh, she said, uh, but my sense is that Missy, Mackenzie's daughter who is, who is abducted and murdered, that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as the adult trying to deal with it. And I showed it to Kim and she said, boy, she, she nailed it. You know, there's a reason that Mel Melissa Ann Phillips and Mackenzie Allen Phillips both spell map, right? I'm both the missing child and, and the adult trying to work it out. And I come from a highly religious family. I'm the firstborn of a missionary uh, family and a preacher. When we came back to Canada when I was about 10, almost 10, uh, my dad became an itinerant preacher and we traveled around the country. Um, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. So I'm an expert in saying goodbye. You know, every hello is a goodbye just waiting to happen. And which was safe because it didn't take me very long to start having the inside world start poisoning the outside world. And it was, it was like, oh, I gotta leave and try to start over again, right? Because I believe one of the most fundamental lies that human beings believe in is that we're kind of worthless. You know, we're, we're wretched. We even write really silly songs about it. You know, like, you are good, you are good, there is nothing good in me. That's bullshit. It's, <laughs> I'm serious because it's like saying that, that God knows how, that he, put it this way, God doesn't become anything that is not very good and God becomes fully human. You know, the truth of your being is that you're created in the image and the likeness of God. So below all the damage is the immortal diamond, to use Richard Rohr's language. There is something that is really ultimately beautiful and good and right. And the image and likeness of God is who you truly are. It's just been covered over by sexual abuse, by any kind of abuse, by loss, you know, by lies. And we begin to believe that about ourselves. That's called shame, and shame becomes the enemy. So, 50 years old, I f you know, Kim has been saying for about four years, and I didn't feel ready until the year I turned 50, and suddenly, it's like, oh my gosh. I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. And let me tell you, it took a lot of work. Mackenzie's weekend in the shack represents 11 years for me, right? This is not magic, this is work. And uh, I had to make a choice 11 years prior to this to either do the work or kill myself because I hurt too many people. I, I blew up my world. And part of the beauty of what God does is that he, he will not stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in us. When it says that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world, the word convict means to expose. And God doesn't expose you to humiliate you. He exposes you to heal you without exposure. This is why secrets are so damaging. You know, and at 50 years old, I'm going like, I have no secrets in my life, and I don't. There is nothing about my life that I can't talk about that Kim doesn't know, that my kids don't know, that my friends don't know. There is, I have no addictions, and I had a lot of them. Right? 
Uh, and I'm the same person in every situation. That didn't exist. I was a different person depending on who was in front of me, right? Because I learned to live from the outside in as a survival mechanism. I'm just trying to stay safe. So the question for me was, what do you want me to be for you? I, I can do that, right? Rather than living from the inside, which I thought was worthless, wretched, and all the other theological language that I grew up with, and that my father had instilled in me. 50 years old. It took 50 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. Right? 50 years. And, uh, and so I write a story for my kids on the train to one of my three jobs. And I get it done for Christmas. And uh, I make 15 copies at Office Depot because it's cheaper than Kinko's. <laughs> and I put a little spiral thing on the side and a little plastic cover. And, and, I, and I called it The Shack. And I gave it, six copies went to my kids. Uh, Kim got a copy and the extras I gave to my friends. And I went back to work. Didn't cross my mind one time to publish a book. You know, I, I wrote it for that reason. And I want, want you to understand two things, really important to me. Those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. You understand? It did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And the second thing, everything that matters to me was in place before I wrote the book. Identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, all in place before I wrote the book. The book has not given me any of those things. Let me tell you the gift the book has given me. The book has given me an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Right? We're surrounded by holy ground, but we don't even know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to listen to the story that is right in front of us. And let me tell you, I've heard thousands and been written thousands of stories. Some of the most unbelievable, most beautiful things, too beautiful for words. Some of the most wrenching, devastating losses. Moments, I was doing a book signing in Texas for Eve and um, and a woman, an elderly woman, comes up and, and she carries the weight of the world in her body. You, you understand? When you've been hurt, um, especially by shame, it drives your face to the ground. It stoops your shoulders, right? And, and it's all over her. And she comes and she hands me a photo. And I look at it and it's an old sepia photo, you know, like the 1920s, you know, and, it, and there's this little girl sitting on a stoop of this cabin, a shack. It's just this broken, rundown thing. Her clothes are tattered. It's black and white. And she's just sitting there with this emptiness in her eyes. And, um, and she lean, this woman leans over to me and she says, she points to the little girl in the picture and she says, this little girl never comes out to meet anyone, but she wanted to come meet you. If that's not holy ground, 
Yeah? So, into this whole confluence has become come all this weaving of story. My story and the other stories. And I want to I tell you a story, and then we're going to open it up for... I, I'm a Canadian, so I do Q&R. <laughs> you know, if I was an American, I'd probably do Q&A, but I'm a Canadian. I don't, I don't have all the answers, so it's questions and responses. We do have a form of Q&A in Canada. It's questions and apologies. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Even our buses, when they're out of service, it says, sorry. Yeah. I now live just north of Portland, Oregon, and that's because it's Kim's territory. I've been there, you know. She has a huge family. Our kids are there. We're not leaving. And, um, and I, like, I like coming from Canada. We don't fight with almost anybody. It's so great. So um, people are trying to fight with us, but you know, that's a whole different thing. The, um, so I want to do uh, some question and response time. And you're allowed to ask about anything. You're allowed to ask about my family, my relationship with Kim, how I blew up the world, um, why, did I, why did I do this? Shall we all pray? And then, um, but I want to start with a story because I, I think, amen, yes. And I, but uh, because I love these stories. I think, some, and I think we're surrounded by the activity of a God who's good all the time and involved in the details of our lives, right? But one of the things that you cannot do, you cannot trust a God that you don't believe is good all the time. I mean, you can give deference, you can give some sense of respect, but we've gotten delivered, for those of who are in my family, modern evangelical fundamentalists, we've gotten delivered a God who is not trustworthy. Narcissistic, abusive, I mean, if we're gonna call, a, call it what it is, right? And, um, but, but that's, that's the God be, that was delivered to me because it's the only one my father knew and it changed his world. I mean, he, he had met Jesus and, and that had an effect. God doesn't, thankfully, God doesn't wait till we're perfect so that we can participate in what God's doing. Or else none of us are doing anything, right? And, and so yes, we have baggage and we gotta deal with it. And, and we, we try to pass on to our children and our grandchildren less baggage than was delivered to us, you know? And that's the movement in the direction. So, um, when, at the very beginning, my friends started giving the book to their friends. And we had to put a little collection together and make 15 more copies. And, and uh, so the book started to get out there. And here was crazy. People started to try to track me down. I'm working, doing three jobs. I'm shipping out soldering tips. I'm cleaning toilets. I'm working as a hotel night clerk, food processing sometimes, and then um, web conferencing on the side, whatever it took, because we had nothing. And, um, um, and in my first manuscript, it said, The Shack by Mackenzie Allen Phillips with William P. Young. It was a joke, right? Because all my friends knew it was a joke. My family knew it was a joke. And, uh, but people started trying to track down Mackenzie. And they wanted to fly to Portland 
to have coffee or lunch or supper or something with Mackenzie because the book, this little thing was getting out there and was having an impact in people's lives. And they were writing emails. And, they were, and these emails weren't like, oh, I read your book, thank you. They were like, let me tell you how your book landed in the middle of my great sadness. And, it, and so I'm going like, oh, we better take Mackenzie off the authorship, you know? So I talked to him and he was okay with it and then, you know. The other joke, because he's the main character in the book, the other joke was the William P. Young thing. I am William Paul Young, but nobody knows me as William. I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. We all go by our middle names. And um, so I put it in there as a joke. I would get calls from friends of mine. Paul, have you read this book by this William Young? <laughs> he, he thinks just like you. I go like, nah, I heard he's a heretic. That's what I heard. <laughs> so, so this thing gets out there. Well, three guys in California get a hold of it, and they, they're immediately in a conversation with me about making it into a movie. You know, I'm cleaning toilets. It's like, oh, yeah, right. A movie, like it's not even kind of a real book, right? And, uh, and so that starts a conversation. Inside that conversation, we decide, okay, we should probably put it in print that's accessible. And, and here's the only statistic I was told. If you can write a novel and you can sell 100,000 copies, Hollywood will come to your door and talk to you about a movie. 100,000. And I'm going like, there's more people than that in Portland. Like, how hard can that be? You know, that's how naive I was, right? I didn't realize the reason they do that is because 100,000 is rare, like so rare. It's a, what I didn't know until a couple years later was that the average book that is published uh, in US and Canada sells between three and 5,000 copies, right? If you can sell a novel and sell 7,500, you can legitimately put bestseller on your novel, right? Didn't know that. And, 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 and I'm going like, okay, 100,000. So we got it ready. I'm working three jobs. It takes about a year to get the typesetting done, and these guys are helping me. One of the, um, uh, oh, so we sent it to 26 publishers. Half of them were faith-based Christian publishers, and half of them were secular mainstream press. And I was hoping, I was kind of hoping that the secular folks picked it up because I didn't want it to come out as a Christian book, you know? Um, and that's just a, uh, it's a very personal thing for me. Uh, it's like after the Inklings died, Lewis and all those guys, it's kind of like we forgot how to write good fiction. We always had to turn it into propaganda, you know, put a hook in it. And it's like, ah, oh, no. Well, I didn't need to worry. They all turned it down. So, and, and the faith-based people had two issues with it, and the secular people had two issues with it. One they had in common, and the one in common was, what genre is this? Where are we going to put it in a store? Right? Do we put it in fiction? Do we put it in murder mystery? Do we put it in self-help? Do we put it in theology? Do we put it in, where does this fit? Because it just didn't fit anywhere. The second, the thing that they had different, the faith-based people said, too edgy for our people. The secular people said, too much Jesus. So I got stuck between edgy and Jesus. 
What nobody knew was that there are millions of people stuck between Edgy and Jesus. <laughs> right? So they all turn it down. I'm, I asked the question, well, how hard is it to actually publish a book? So two of the guys created a publishing company, two of the three guys that wanted to turn it into a movie. One of them volunteered to ship the books out of his house at night because he's putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And we found a local printer near his house. And we ordered, how many do you order? I don't know, we ordered 10,000. Which we were told later, you know that's 8,000 in your garage after you've run out of friends and family. Right? So now we have, and not only 10,000, they delivered 11,000 to the guy's house, his garage. Because there's this thing in publishing, printing, called overage, where they're, they're allowed to accidentally print an extra 10% and charge you for them. So now we had 11,000 copies, no distribution system, no promotion system, we're not on anybody's radar. Nobody even knows that this little tiny imprint does not, it now exists, this little publishing house for 500 bucks or whatever it was. And, um, and so we set up a website. <laughs> what else do you do, right? So we set up a website and, and we gave a bunch of books away. Well, it's okay. I got a great story about a cell phone going off. In fact, I'll tell you. So this is the kind of thing that happens, right? So you have to understand the difference between my wife's family and my family. My wife is from Minot, North Dakota. These are salt of the earth people. She has five sisters and two brothers. Her five sisters, her and her five sisters are called the force. And may the force be with you, right? So they migrated west. Um, and um, so they, these folks, I mean, everything's loud. They love loud, they fight loud, they forgive loud. I'm from a religious family. We hide everything, we lie about most stuff. You know, when, when we get together, we have to have an order of service, you know? And, and it, was, it freaked me out. Well, I was at this wedding in Portland, and it was a traditional one, which is not normal in Portland. Normally, you know, you have some Northwestern kind of thing. And, uh, but this one, they had the little section in the, in the marriage process where, does anybody here have any reason these two shouldn't, you know, get married? And... Um, you don't do that in Portland because you'd be there all night. And so, you know, I got a reason, you know, so. Um, but they had it in this service and it was a very, very traditional conservative service. And my phone not only went off, it went right to speaker. <laughs> and this booming voice, one of Kim's sisters says, hey Paul, are you still in that silly wedding or what? You should be here, don't you know? You know? And she said my name. I couldn't go, Nicholas, turn your phone off. So I don't mind when a phone goes off. It's totally okay. No, sorry. Are you Canadian? So, uh, a mother is. All right, it's genetic. The, um, so so when, when we got these books, people immediately start emailing me. We'd sent about a thousand of them all over the world because there were the two guys, two of the guys had had a little podcast and they were talking about the concepts in the book. And we sold a thousand copies pre-order, which were the extra thousand that we got from the printer, right? But immediately I start getting emails from all over the world. And, it, and they were 
unbelievable. One of the first is from northern Canada, up near Edmonton. And it was one of those roadside memorials where somebody had been killed. In this case, it was a, a dad who was talked into going for ice cream by the four-year-old daughter, and both were killed by an 18-wheeler. And on the memorial on the roadside, on a post next to it, and I have a photo of it because they sent it to me, somebody bungee corded a copy of the shack. That's one of the first ones I got. And so you, it's like, what's going on? Well, we were hoping, our big goal was, let's try to get through these 11,000 copies in two years, even if we have to give away 9,000 of them, and then let's work our way up to 100,000, and then Hollywood will come talk to the guys about a movie. So I'm back working my three jobs, right? I don't own any part of the publishing house. I'm just doing my thing. And, uh, and people are coming to the website, and they're, that's the only place you could find it. Well, about three and a half months into this, this was May 2007. In the, in the middle of, um, three, and a, three and a half months later, middle of August, May, June, July, yep. Um, I get a phone call from, from California. Hey, Paul, we need to order more books. What? Did we give them all away? <laughs> no, people are coming to the website and they buy one and then they come back two weeks later and they buy five and then they come back two weeks later and they buy cases. What? So what are we gonna do? Well, how many, do we, how many should we order? I don't know. So we ordered 20,000 and they delivered 22,000. <laughs> Worked last time, right? Those 22,000 books landed in the garage the day we had one case of books left from the first print run. So now we're experts in supply chain management. Right? So all of a sudden, it's starting to take off. And, and the, the publishers who turned us down start showing up. Distributors start calling because People are going into Barnes and Noble and going like, I want a copy of The Shack. And they're going, let me look it up. They look it up and they go like, sorry, doesn't exist, right? Well, it's with this publisher. They look it up, sorry, that publisher doesn't exist, right? Because we were on nobody's radar. And, and so it was like, uh, um, Barnes and Noble's like, Who, where's this book? There was a, a book called The Shack by Mulholland that was in Amazon's archives. It got a huge hit during this time. <laughs> Not a nice book, right? I can just see Edith out there going like, I can't believe Mildred recommended me this book, you know? <laughs> so it's like, what's going on? And it, and it starts to take off. Barnes and Nobles calls us and says, hey, we're really excited about your little book. Could you send us your marketing and promotion plan so we can get on board? <laughs> this is exactly what we said. Do you have one that we could, you could send us that we could cut and paste? Because <laughs> we had no clue, right? And they laughed and hung up. And about two weeks later, he calls back and he says, hey, normally we charge a publisher a lot of money to put their books at the front of our stores nationwide. And the distributors don't even look at a publisher unless they have at least 10 titles, right? We had one title. And, and, and he says, and I'm talking a lot of money, thirty to $50,000 a month to put a book. It's called placement, you know? And, and they said, but would you allow us 
to do this for you for three months for free. Well, let me pray and fast about that one, you know, it's like, sure, and they did. So in those first 13 months, because after 13 months, from May of 07 to the end of June of 08, because at that point, the two guys who owned the publishing house entered a joint venture with Hachette, uh, the second largest publisher in the world at the time that took the book internationally, right? But in those first 13 months, out of a garage, two storage units, and a local printer, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the Shack. Yeah. Yeah. We're brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was such a God thing from the very beginning. Nobody saw it coming. And, uh, and, then, and then it just took off <laughs> from there. And it, and it went all over the world. It became the number two book in the history of Brazil. Croatia dubs it their book of the decade. And the Ministry of Culture calls, contacts me and says, would you come talk to our country? We're really broken. You know, Serbia calls. Nobody will talk to us because of the, the bombing, you know. And um, would you come? And I did. I mean, the ripple effect becomes a bestseller in Germany, becomes a bestseller in South Korea, and on and on and on. And we're just like, what is this? Would you go to Congress? <laughs> would I go to Congress? Well, there are some miracles that we just have to wait for God to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell you, raising the dead is a smaller miracle than changing someone's heart. I'm serious. Raising the dead is just biological and it's terminal anyway. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a pause, right? It's a pause button. And, uh, but changing a human heart, that's, that's a miracle. And um, so, okay, so here's, here's my story. I... Um, I didn't expect to be involved in the movie because in the journey, these three guys that wanted to turn it into a movie, that was what their desire was from the beginning. So as we began to work out all the details, I laid down all the rights. And I had them, but I laid them all down, 100%. No creative control, no rights whatsoever. At all, zero. And I, and I, and I never have regretted that decision. Right? It was really at the leading of the Holy Spirit. It was like, now it's time, lay it down. I laid it down. So I didn't expect to be involved. Then I get a call from Lionsgate. They say, hey, would you come talk to us? So I go talk to them in the, some big floor of some big building down in Hollywood. And all, you know what we did? We sat around, told stories, and cried a lot. We did. You know, there was a woman there who's, um, whose son had committed suicide. And, and she was from a Catholic background, and that's a mortal sin. And, and because of the devastation of the loss of her son and the idea that he would spend eternity in hell, it was like, I'm done with this God, right? And it was the shack that brought her back, right? And so we're in this upper room of Lionsgate, a secular media house, and all we're doing is telling stories about the goodness of God in the middle of our losses. Because let me tell you, in a world like this, with all the divisions that exist, political and otherwise, we all share loss and love. That's what we have in common, is loss and love. And, um, so I, and I'm telling them, you know I don't have any rights. And there, you know, I, there, is a, there is a possibility that they were just making sure, checking me out, that I wouldn't be an enemy of the project, you know? 
it's the author and all that. He could really do the normal stinky thing or whatever. And, and I'm going like, I don't have any rights. People would come to me and they say, well, what if they do a really bad job? And I go like, I'm a modern evangelical kid. That's where I grew up. I used to know what God was going to do, and I used to tell everybody. <laughs> right? I haven't done that for a long time. I know God is good, but I don't know what the purposes of God are. And if the purposes of God are better served by a really crappy movie, I'm in. <laughs> Serious. My identity doesn't come from this, right? My significance doesn't come from this. So I'm not at risk here. That's the kind of freedom that I've found in a God who is trustworthy and good all the time. Right? So it wasn't an issue for me. So I thought, well, that was kind of cool to go down there and talk with these guys. Then I get a call from Gil Netter, who did Life of Pi, Marley and Me, Blindside, producer, right? And he calls me up and he says, would you look at the script? Sure. Would you talk to us about the actors? What do you think about this person? What do you think about this person? You know? Sure. Then I get a call from Lionsgate. Would you come on to the first day's shoot in British Columbia? And they had about a 60-day shoot, multiple site locations, right? Because when you sh shoot a movie, there's all kinds of different sets. And they don't shoot it in sequence, right? Because it depends on when the actors are available and it depends on, they, it's shot all out of sequence. And, um, and they said, but would you come to the first day shoot? This is Lionsgate. And would you pray a blessing over the entire cast and crew? <laughs> yeah. So I go up there. I think it's in the extras. I think they, they filmed it, the blessing that I prayed over the entire cast and crew. And there was like 60 people there, right? We'd taken over. They had taken over the neighborhood in White Rock. And um, so I spend the day hanging out with the, the electrical people and the set designer. The set designer, Joseph Nemec, is an absolute lover of Jesus. When he'd read the shack, he said, God, there's one thing that I would love to do is the set design. Well, they gave it to somebody else in New York. And the last minute, the guy in New York bailed. And they looked around and went, who could we get? And they said, well, there's Joseph. He actually lives in Vancouver, you know, up right near where they're shooting the film. And so he ended up, he's the one that built the casket by hand, right? And he did all the set design work. And, um, and so we kind of hung out. And then over the next weeks, he would just send me all the pictures that he wasn't allowed to. It was so cool. <laughs> so, so I'm on the first day set. At the end of the day, I mean, it's just been a, a marvelous day. And at the end of the day, Gil, I hear Gil yell out, hey, Paul, what? Do you want to be in a cameo? A cameo? Like in, a, in the movie? He goes, yeah. He says, I've never done a movie based on a book and the author was alive that I didn't put the author in it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? My kids are going to, they're going to love this. I, what do I have to do? Yeah, simple. Tim McGraw, Willie, is going to be having a conversation with Sam Worthington, Mackenzie, as the kids are piling into the car. They're going to go to the Wallawas for camping. And uh, while they're talking, all you have to do is walk through the scene behind them. And it's, you're just a guy in the neighborhood that's walking through, but you'll be in the movie. You want to do that? I'm thinking, I've walked almost all my life. <laughs> I was created for this, right? But I don't think about walking. 
when you start thinking about walking. <laughs> Have you ever gone down a flight of stairs and start thinking about? It's like you go down the stairs all the time, you don't think about it as easy as pie. You start thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, there's another step. And it, it only took five takes. <laughs> I'm a professional. Streetwalker. So, uh, so it was so cool, and it's in there, like for two seconds, but I'm there. If, if you look, you look for a, a little older, balding, little overweight white guy. He's carrying a book, which wasn't the shack, and he's just walking through the scene, and he walks really, really good. Okay. So, no movie credit for it, but you know, what can you do? So um, I thought that was cool. That was cool. And um, about 60 days later, 50 days later, uh, closer to 60, because it was a little bit over a 60-day shoot, I get a call from Lionsgate. Hey, Paul, we loved having you back. Uh, we, we loved having you. Would you come back for another day? We would love to fly you up on Wednesday. You'd spend the... the um, you, we'd drive you from Vancouver Airport to Chilliwack, which is a town in the central interior, and um, your hotel will be there. And then um, you'll get a call sheet that night that'll tell you what time we're picking you up and where we're taking you, because we don't even know yet, right? And you, and you won't know what we're shooting, because we don't know. And, um, and it's all out of sequence anyway, so it could be anything. But would you come spend all day Thursday with us? We'll take you back to the hotel, and then transport will take you back to Vancouver Airport on, on Friday morning. I, I look at my schedule, it's wide open that week, which is not normal. And I'm going like, absolutely, I'm, I'll, I'm in. And they said, great, we'll, we'll get it all set up, we'll send you the flight stuff and all that, which, um, which they did. And um, so I'm sitting there, and this nudge, I get this thought. God knows your language, okay? Um, a lot of people say, well, I, I can't hear God. That's probably because you're trying to hear God the way somebody else does. You know, I think God knows your language so well that you dismiss it, right? It is so natural to you that you discount it. If you've got any shame in your life, you discount it, right? And it's like, no. So... God knows how to talk to me. I've never heard God speak audibly. I have friends ha who have, and, and I believe them. And, uh, but I haven't. But I know that voice. You know? And it took me a lot of years to begin to distinguish between the voice of shame and the voice of God and, you know, voice of religion and all that. And, um, um, but, I, but one of the ways that I talk about how the Holy Spirit um, speaks to me is a nudge. I get a thought. I get an idea. And I, I'm sure it's mine, and it, and it kind of is, but it turns out to be more than that. Oh, let me put it this way. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone, and they're troubled, or they're asking you something, and, and you respond, and suddenly out of your mouth comes something you've never thought of that is absolutely brilliant? <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. See, and that's my point. And, and, and you're sitting there going like, that's amazing, I gotta write this down. Or something, you know. And you, in that moment, you know that that person thinks you are the most brilliant human being on the planet. And you've never thought of this before. 
right? That happens in our lives. So I get a nudge, and the nudge is, hey, there is this guy up in British Columbia that I've been trying to meet face to face. He's a theologian, and I had endorsed his most recent book at the time, and his name's Brad Jerzak. And I'd met Eden, his wife, but I'd never met Brad, and partly because Brad spends a good chunk of the year in London because he's a seminary professor in London. And, but he lives in Abbotsford, which is the next town next to Chilliwack. And so I get this thought, I need to contact Brad and see if he's even in the continent. And maybe when I'm up there, maybe the day I arrive, we can grab coffee or something. So I email him, hey Brad. Um, uh, and he had just gone through Eve for me and given me lots of feedback. And so we'd been in touch, but I didn't know where he was. Hey Brad, I'm coming up on Wednesday. This is why I'm coming. The, to go to a movie set. We don't know where it is, but I'm coming up, and um, would there be any possibility, are you in the continent, and are you around that we could have coffee or something? Immediately get an email back. Can I pick you up at the airport? Let me check. I check with transport because it saves them five hours round trip, and transport goes like, saves us five hours round trip. Are you kidding? Yes. So I Email him back. Yes. Um, he says, he emails me back. Here's what we'll do. I'll come get you at the airport, and you're coming in late in the morning, so I'll, I'll come meet you. We'll have lunch together. Then we'll spend the afternoon talk shop theology, and then we'll go over to have supper with Eden, and then I'll take you to the hotel in Chilliwack, um, and then uh, you can go about your business from there. Great. I'm sitting there for probably five minutes working on something, and... Another email from Brad, this one with a picture. And he says, Paul, I got to tell you something. And in the picture is Brad and, a, and an, an, a little bit older gentleman, distinguished looking. And over on this other side is a brilliant yellow arrow. And Brad says, while you and I were emailing, my friend Dwight and I were walking in the woods near his, his and his wife Lori's Dwight and Lori's summer cottage up at Cultus Lake. And we're walking in the middle of the woods, and I'm emailing you, and look! And this big yellow fluorescent sign says, the shack. And big yellow fluorescent signs in British Columbia mean movie set. So here, two and a half blocks away from their summer cottage, they had no clue was one of the sets for the shack. And I'm emailing with Brad as they run into it. And Brad says, Paul, this is amazing. Um, he said, Dwight is the first person who told me about the shack and gave me my first copy. And he said, um, it radically changed their lives. But three years ago, the youngest of their five children hung herself in the middle of the woods in a treehouse, gave her life back to God, and they're stuck. And if there's any way you could even spend 10 minutes with them, it would be, it would be so amazing. And he said, Dwight believes that if he could just read the shack again, he could get unstuck, but he hasn't been able to make it past chapter one. And Lori is just furious and she's a spiritual formations director. Dwight's a business guy. 
and Lori is just mad. And later Brad says to me, you know, and I was with them through some of the counseling parts of it, and she would come back to this. How can I trust a God who is not good all the time? My daughter is dead, right? That was the mantra, and she was stuck there. So I said, we'll figure it out. I'll, I don't know where I'm going to be, uh, but we'll figure it out. So Wednesday, I fly up there, meet Brad. It's like meeting a long-lost brother, you know. We're instantly uh, together. And, uh, and it's amazing. We go have supper with Eden. It's great. And he drops me off at the hotel. 11.30 that night, I get, I get the call sheet. And the call sheet says, we'll pick you up at 9.30. We're taking you to the site location at Cultus Lake. So I'm going to be two and a half blocks, away, basically distance-wise, away from where they are, up at this site location, where they're going to shoot something, and I get to be there all day. So I get up there, and I'm texting Brad, hey, I'm here. He said, we've got food ready. Anytime you tell us, we'll come down the waterfront, pick you up, even if it's for 10 minutes. I think it's going to be important. So I walk onto the set, and I walk over to... Um, uh, Stuart Hazeldean, the director, and uh, to um, Gil and Lonnie Netter, the producers, Gil and his wife. And I walk over to them and I say, look, because when I'd gotten that note from Brad, I had another nudge and I had turned it into an email and sent it to those three. And I said, look, here is another story that revolves around the movie that you're making, right? So you're, you're making a movie that includes these kinds of losses. And so I walk over to them and I said, you know that email that I just sent you? They said, yeah. I said, they're two and a half blocks away. Is there any way that the four of my friends can come on the set for the day? And not only did they say yes, they said, absolutely. And 20 minutes later, down the waterfront comes Dwight and Lori and Brad and Eden. And they stepped onto this set, and I hug Lori. And I'm a hugger. If you don't want to hug, you've got to warn me. But, but I hug Lori, and, um, and I hold on to her until something, I feel it shift, even a little bit. Well, one of the reasons that they wanted me there again was that this is where they built the shack. You know, and this is where... The first time I'd been there, Octavia Spencer wasn't there. Um, uh, Aviva Lush, who plays Jesus, wasn't there. Sume, who plays the Holy Spirit, wasn't there. So I, you know, the Trinity wasn't there the first day I was there. Not in any visible form, anyway. And, uh, but now they're all there. And so they wanted me to see this. They wanted me to see the shack. They wanted, they wanted to honor me with this. And, and they're shooting a scene, all one scene all morning long, taking a break for lunch, shooting one scene all afternoon, taking a break for supper, and shooting one scene all evening. Because they're going to shoot the scene over and over and over. Different camera angles, different expressions. The actor has to be good with it, you know. And it'll take all morning for one shot. And, um, but we don't know what they are, what the shot is. And it turns out they're going to be outside shots, which means you can't hear anything. It's all mic'd up and with the boom mics and uh, hidden mics and all this. But if you're watching it from outside, you can see something happening, but you can't hear anything. Well, they had already set it up. They already had it for us. Without anything we said, they have what's called a video village. It's about the size of this stage. It's in a tent. 
And um, it's a little bit wider than this, but it's movable. So when they move to, to do a new shot, it gets moved so that the producer and the director can sit and they're watching two huge monitors of the actual shot that's being shot by the cameras. And they have headphones that have the actual sound that's being recorded while that's being shot on a different track. So that later, the editors will take all these different shots plus all the different sound recordings and put together the way that they want it for the presentation in the movie. Very involved and complicated. Well, they had five chairs for us right in front of the monitors with five headphones. And we go and sit down and it's me and uh, Brad, Eden, Lori, Dwight. Uh, no, Eden's on the other side of Lori. And so Lori and Dwight are right smack in the middle, right? And so we don't know what's being shot. Here's the scene. Mackenzie has had nightmares all night long about the loss of his daughter. This is the first night that he's been there, right? And, and he is, he's distraught, he's confused, he doesn't, he doesn't want to believe that who he's in the company of is really them. And, but he wakes up in the morning thinking that he won't be there and he's still there. And he comes out onto the porch and Papa's singing a Neil Young song. Only love can break your heart, right? And she's got breakfast all ready for him on the porch. And she goes, you like Neil Young? He's okay. And you can see this anger and this repressed fury that's just under the surface. And Papa says, yeah, I'm especially fond of him. He's like, whatever. And um, he says, how'd you sleep? Fine. Dreams are important. Sometimes their way of opening up the window, letting the bad air out, which is a Bruce Coburn line, right? It was supposed to be, she was supposed to be listening to a Bruce Coburn song, but we couldn't get the rights fast enough, so we ended up with Neil Young, so, which is okay. Still a Canadian, still good, you know? So, so, but she says that. And then she kind of invites him to sit down, offers him something he refuses. And they start a conversation. And we're watching this being shot the first time, right? The conversation starts to get involved. Don't you get mad at them? You know, what about your wrath? Your wrath. My what? Your wrath. Sorry, you lost me there, you know? And there's this, and, and, and finally she says, Mackenzie, you know what the flaw in your life is? You don't believe that I'm good. I am. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. And all this fury comes up to the surface. And he says, why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And he gets up, smashes the glass off the table, and walks off. And we're like, <gasps> and I look over at Lori and Dwight, and they're like, and they reset, and we watch it again. And we watch it again. And we watch it again. And about the fourth time, Lori gets up and walks out, and I follow her out, and I just hold on to her while she comes apart. But then she comes back in, and we watch it again. 
The flaw is you don't believe that I'm good. And until you believe that I'm good, it says, I am. And everything you consider to be a mess, I'm in the middle of working for your good. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. Why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead. Why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead. We break for lunch and over comes Octavia. And I don't know if they knew about this or not, but Octavia comes over, Jesus comes over, the Holy Spirit comes over. <laughs> Everybody's hugging on Dwight and Lori. And we're just like, what is this, you know? So we sit down in the afternoon inside the Video Village for the second shoot. And it's the scene right after Mackenzie has walked out of the kitchen after the conversation with Papa about nail scars in her wrists. Where she says, don't you ever think that what my son chose to do didn't affect us all, right? I mean, it is a powerful, as far as a single scene, it's incredible. So the next scene, and this is the one we're watching, Mackenzie is sitting on the steps. Give it a moment. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Mackenzie is sitting on, on the steps. And Papa comes out to talk to him. We're looking at a little bird. See that bird, Mackenzie? That bird was created to fly. You were created to live loved. But sometimes pain is a way of clipping our wings so that you forget you were ever created to fly. And you can see this turmoil going on inside of him. And he finally says, why did you bring me here? And she says, because it's here that you got stuck. Mackenzie, this is your flying lesson. I mean, we're, we're shattered. We're bawling, you know? When you see those two scenes in the movie, we're in the video village watching them happening in the middle of this tragedy, right? That evening when we're saying our goodbyes, hugs and tears and, and, they, and Dwight and Lori go, you have no idea. And I said, yeah, I don't. And I'm thinking, think about this. I let down all the rights for this movie and Lionsgate invites me to be a, a, an active participant. And they actually asked me to come to the first day shoot and pray a blessing. Oh, and then they invite me back. They don't have to do any of this, right? They let me look at the script. They let me do all this. And they invite me back. And I get a nudge to contact Brad, who happens to be walking in the woods with a friend of his named Dwight, two and a half blocks from a summer cottage in Cultus Lake. And they run into a set. And that happens to be the set that I end up at. And they get to come on the set and they get to watch these two scenes that are smack in the middle of their great sadness. You don't think there is a God who's good all the time and involved in the details of our lives? Yeah. I just think that we spend so much time being future trippers, you know, creating imaginations about all the things we're afraid of that don't exist, that we're not present enough to see the activity of God that's happening right around us. 
And at some point, we've got to become like children again and stay inside one day's worth of grace because you only get grace for one day. Everything else is just imagination. I mean, how many times have I been to my own kids, you know, catast catastrophes? They got, you know, every kind of disease. They've been hit by every kind of thing. I've even gone to my own funeral, you know? I was the only one who cried. What's wrong with you people? You know, but we create, I've, I've been fired in my imagination from every job I've had. I've, I've failed at everything I've ever tried without even trying. Imagination. Take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough issues of its own. Sufficient to the day is the grace thereof. Don't spend real grace on things that don't exist, which will allow you to stay in the presence. And the only way you can do that is if you trust God. And the only way you can trust God is if you believe that he's good. And that's where our experience runs into our theology. Because frankly, the God delivered to me was not good. Jesus was good, but God the Father was of a different nature. Jesus didn't need, to be a, he didn't need a sacrifice, but God the Father did. Jesus, he didn't need to be appeased, but God the Father did. God the Father was the big God of the Trinity. He was the one that everything really mattered for, about. And, so, and he was of a different nature. And that's why it was told to me that that God could pour out all of his fury on his own son in order to be right with other people, which was exactly my experience with my dad. Only the righteous man was allowed to be angry. And I struggled with that. And it was, we were even told that, you know, Jesus will come cover you up with his righteousness so that God the Father doesn't know that you're a piece of crap. And then you can stay in heaven as long as Jesus is somehow between you and God, you know, so that when God looks at Jesus, he doesn't see you. I mean, we were told all this kind of nonsense stuff. Yeah. We were told that we weren't created inside of a circle of love. We, told, we were told that we were separated from the very get-go. You know, and then Jesus had to come to rescue us. But our salvation was still up to us. You still had to say the magic words or something. You know, and it was all of these things came into conflict. How can you trust a God who's not good all the time? And Jesus comes to say, I want to tell you about a God who's good all the time. I'm, I'm not here to change God's mind about you. I'm here to change your mind about God. Richard Rohr. So it's like, ugh, what do we do with this? And this was a huge struggle for me, ever since I was young. Did God abandon his son? Well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know that the first not good in scripture is not the eating of the, the fruit? Do you know that through one man sin entered the world eight times in the New Testament? Not through Satan, not through the angelic, not through Eve. She was thoroughly and completely deceived through one man. So what's going on? Is that mine? Excuse me.
I made a mistake in the shack. It's a pretty big one, but I've left it in there because I kind of like that there's a big mistake in there. And that's when Mackenzie goes back into the shack and, he, and it's the first time. That's when Papa has spun him around on the porch and he's like freaking out, doesn't know what's going on, right? And, um, and they've been inside of his broken place the whole time and he hasn't even confessed or repented yet, <laughs> right? And, and he goes into the building and he looks over to where Missy's bloodstain should be and it's not there, mistake. I told him, and they had the scene, but when they start cutting, it got cut. But I told him, if you do that scene, I want the bloodstain to still be there. Because just because you deal with your stuff doesn't mean that the evidence of your journey disappears. There are still nail scars on the wrists. Right? And, and, and here's the beauty of, of the blood still being there. Who originates the cross? Is it God's idea? Does God create torture devices? No. God's never made a cross in his existence. We did. We made torture devices. And it seems that from the beginning of creation, there was no way to create this magnificently high-order being where they wouldn't say no to love. And from the beginning, even in the act of creation, God creates creation with Jesus slain from the foundation. An ultimate act of submission to our fist in the face of God. God doesn't build crosses. When it says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's not talking about anything God's giving you. He's talking about living in a broken world where people will give you plenty of crosses. You can find them in your own family. Right? We live in a world full of crosses. It's about pick up your cross. I will be with you. I'm with you. Right? And so God doesn't make crosses but it becomes the iconic symbol. How is God going to destroy the iconic symbol of our rebellion by submitting to it? And that's another thing I wasn't told growing up, that this is a God who submits by nature. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Spirit to the Son. This is about relationship and a God who submits by nature. God wouldn't ask you to do something that God doesn't do in terms of God's own being. When we are to submit one to another, that is because that is the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's relationship. And this is a God who submits to you all the time. How many times has God come to you and going like, oh, you're so bad at these decisions. You know what? I'm going to make them for you. We wish, right? But God has too high a respect for you to make your choices for you. And he will not abandon you to them. But this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in you either. This is a God who is a consuming fire, but this is a fire that is for you, not against you. This is a fire that intends to burn everything out of you that is not of love's kind so that you can be freed to be fully human and fully alive. There's all kinds of words in the Greek for judgment. There's only one that is retributive and punitive. Tamoria, 
temeraea. It is never used of God. It is only used of how human beings relate to each other. All the rest of the language of judgment is restorative. If you have a concept of justice that doesn't, is not just love with the intent for restoration, you only have vengeance. God, geez, you know, scripture says, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then he tells you what vengeance is in the same passage. Repay evil with good. That's the vengeance of God. This is a God who only is good, Jesus. There is only one who's good, and that's God. Any goodness you find on the planet is an expression of the life of God. Anytime you see anybody, atheist, whatever, who loves their child, that is the presence of God. Because everything that is good derives from the being of God who is good. What is God to do? Seeing that his creation is on the road to ruin and heading to lapse into non-being. The incarnation. That's, that's a quote from 320 AD on the incarnation of the word of God by Athanasius. Right? It's beautiful. So here we've got the cross. So who pours their wrath on Jesus? Read Isaiah. We do. You won't find anywhere where it says the Father pours his wrath on the Son. It's not there. We made it up. And you know what Isaiah says? You turned your face from him. You spat on him. You murdered him. And you esteemed him stricken by God. Isaiah is exposing it. Going like, this is what you're going to do with this. You're going to think that the Father did this to the Son. And it's not true. For God was in Christ and reconciled the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. That's Martin Luther's verse. And that's how Martin Luther translated it. Where was God in Christ? Where was the Father in Christ reconciling the world to himself? On the cross. See, this God doesn't do abandonment. You can't separate the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then what's the deal with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first sin in Scripture, the first brokenness, the way sin enters the cosmos is in the verse. Remember, there's a series in the Genesis. Very good, 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 very good, very good, not good. Question, does anything that is not good originate with God? No. No. So who is it going to originate with? Through one man, sin enters the world. What is the not good that Adam considered himself alone? It is not good that the man in the Hebrew be in his separation. And the Hebrew has a phrase for being in solitude, like when you're by yourself. That's not this phrase. This phrase is being in separation. That is, he has turned Adam, who is totally surrounded by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from God. Jesus, particularly, from him. Okay, So Adam, who is inside this relationship, has turned his face away from God. And in doing so, facing away from light, has cast a shadow. And that shadow now becomes that which, through which he defines the world and God. 
And the first decision that he makes about that is that God is not good. He even brings a serpent in from outside the garden to make an accusation against God. Right? He stands there while this serpent deceives Eve and does not defend her, does not protect her, does not take a stance against evil because he brought it in. His, his demise has already started. In fact, the Hebrew says, on the day you eat of this fruit, and this is before Eve even shows up, on the day you eat of this fruit, in dying you will have already died. You're already dead. Because life is in relationship. The call of the gospel is to return. Don't turn away. Return. Find your identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love in us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, aloneness. We are lost in our aloneness. Why is everything destructive in our lives push us to aloneness? Lies push us to aloneness. Shame pushes us to aloneness. Addiction pushes us to aloneness, right? And why is all the language about come out of the dark, you're blind, I'm going to give you eyes to see. I can talk loud enough. Oh, there we go. What is this? It is because everything that drives us away from relationship is contrary to the very being of God. This is a God who loves to be in relationship with us. So where does Jesus have to go to find us? Into our aloneness. When Jesus is sweat and blood in the garden, it's not because of the crucifixion. It's not because of the pain that he will experience. It's because he knows he's going to go to a place that he's never been. And that is where he cannot sense the presence of the Father. He cannot feel the presence of the Father. He cannot hear the Father's voice, which he has always known. From before the incarnation, through the incarnation, born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. I don't do anything unless I'm watching the Father do it. We're one. I and the Father are one. Right? This is relationship. And now he's got to go to where we're lost, which is into our aloneness. He's got to take the very first penetration of brokenness into the universe and go and find us there. And so he cries out Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22 is a hit song, right? These are hit songs. You sing the first line of a hit song, your mind starts going through the song. Everybody knows the songs. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the grave. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the resurrection. Psalm 22 starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it goes on. Do you know how Psalm 22 ends? And he finished it. Do you know what it says halfway through? You, God, you do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. And when he cries, you'll hear. Yes, he can't sense the presence of the Father. Yes, he can't hear the... This is my cry. Most of my life I'm going like, God, where are you? I can't feel you, I can't sense you, I can't hear you. This is my cry. 
I love Jesus in this moment because I know he's with me. Because this is my cry. But he knows the Father. He knows the Father. And what does he say? Into your hands I give you my breath, my spirit. This machine does not take that. Right? This torture device. I may not be able to hear you. I may not be able to sense you. I may not be able to feel your presence. But I know you. You do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. For God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world, the cosmos, to himself, not counting their sins against them. You know what this means to me? There is nothing I can bring to the table that is so dark and so lost that God doesn't climb into it with me. God not only climbs into this, onto this torture device that we created and by submitting to it destroys its power, but then he, he changes it, transforms it into an icon, a monument of grace that is so precious to us that we'll wear it on our rings. I have a torture device on my ring, on, right here, right? But this torture device means I'm alive. Yeah, this is precious to me, a torture device. But he transformed that darkness into something that is precious. And that's the darkness in my life that he can come into and begin to transform it into an icon and a monument of grace. And if you knew my whole story, you'd know. It's what he's done. He's climbed into all that damage. And yeah, I still get triggered, but not nearly as much as I used to. You know what takes me an hour or two now? It used to take me six months. You know? So I can see movement. And, and there's coherency to my life. You can say all you want about my theology, but I can love my wife in authentic openness with no secrets. My children trust me. Kim trusts me. And that took a long time, 11 years. And I can trust. I can live inside the grace of one day because I trust. You know, you deal with fear one of two ways, control or trust. Take your pick. And the only reason you can't trust is because something inside of you says he doesn't know you, he's not involved with you, he doesn't care about you, he's not good. All lies. All lies. So I write a story for my kids to try to put all this into a, a little book. And it's just rippled out. I'm so grateful to be involved in this, but I feel like an outsider, in a sense, watching. You know? It's like, oh my gosh. You know? Like my mom said, you're my son. Who would have thought? It's one of the last things she said to me before she died. She died on New Year's Eve day. Yeah, amazing. 